I got a $100 check from my grandma, and my dad said I need to put it in the bank so it can grow over the years. Well, that's fantastic. A really smart decision, young man. We can put that check in a money market mutual fund. Then we'll reinvest the earnings into foreign currency accounts with compounding interest, and it's gone. What's all gone? The money in your account. It didn't do too well. It's gone. What do you mean? I, I have $100. Not anymore, you don't. Poof. Well, well, what can I do to get back I'm my... I'm sorry, sir, but this line is for bank members only. I just opened an account. Do you have any money invested with this bank? No, you just lost it all. Then please stand aside for people who actually have money with us. Next, please. Hey! Welcome to Noted Episode 0.13 with Tone and Michael Goldstein and myself, Pierre Rochard. How are you guys? I'm doing great. Thanks. Yeah, good. I'm glad to be on your podcast. Yeah, thanks for coming on, Tone. Uh, we, we met in person in New York and it feels like it was a decade ago, but really it was probably only like a year ago, right? I think it was more than a year ago, but it does feel like a decade ago. Uh, it does feel a while ago. And the thing is, at the time when we met, um, I wasn't sure like which direction you were going to be leading to as far as like altcoins go and uh, big blockers go. I'm, I'm glad you went in the same direction as I was already on. But uh, I don't know if you got that feel as well, where uh, it's just back at, in those days, it was a lot harder to figure out which side of the Bitcoin forks you really belong on. Uh, yeah. Pierre wouldn't have risked his friendship with me with such uh, frivolous opinions. Yeah, no, I, I, I do whatever Michael tells me to do because he's kind of the cult guru as the president of the Nakamoto Institute. Um, but I I do remember, um, well, all the way back, I think it was in 2013 or in 2014, I was already arguing with Daniel Krawis about the block size limit uh, privately. Like we never really uh, got into it publicly. Um but I, I did argue about it publicly with Gavin Andreessen on IRC back in 2014. Um, and yeah, I, I don't know why I already had a strong opinion about it, like from the get-go, because it was like, we weren't remotely close to hitting the one megabyte limit at the time. It was very theoretical concern. But uh, after reading the white paper, it's like, Satoshi like made it, he, he, if you want to talk about Satoshi's vision, he says it black and white, like transaction fees are going to replace block subsidy uh, for uh, making sure that the hash rate is high enough to keep the network secure. Um, so that, that was always kind of a, a thing in my mind. Yeah, no. And for me, it was more like, I'm sorry, like, look, so I, Satoshi solved an amazing problem. But from what but I learned in my nine years on Wall Street, what I learned was there are always people that are smarter. Now, those people may not invent set X, but once set X is put in front of them, they will be able to take it further than the original creator. So for me, you know, like once people like Gregory Maxwell and Peter Willa and some of the other guys got in there, like you have to potentially put even more emphasis on their joint view of the situation than Satoshi at the very beginning. Because in the very beginning, he probably did not know what was best and what was or wasn't going to work. 
And when he added that block size limit of one megabyte, he probably didn't realize that there was, that was a point of no return. There is no going back because hard forks are not going to work. And at the time, that probably was like not something that he had to think about. The fact that he's like, oh, we can always like fork. And then you realize, no, wait, you can't. It's too late. You, what's done is done. Can't put that genie back in the bottle. Yeah. And it's funny because even like for us who've been in Bitcoin for years, I feel like every month I'm learning something new about Bitcoin. And to presume that Satoshi knew everything about it and, you know, left in 2010, to me is absurd. Like, there's no way that he knew everything about it and could see the future perfectly uh, because Bitcoin is a continuous process of learning new things. And it's hubris to suggest that he was a soothsayer and we should just do whatever uh, we, we think that he would have done. Right. And here's another challenge that I throw at people quite often, uh, especially like the old coiners that like believe in Litecoin and Monero, all these people that tell me there's going to be multiple blockchains and multiple currencies. And then I ask them, well, what was one of the reasons that you like Bitcoin? And very often they say, well, it's a 21 million coin limit. And my reply to them is, but if you believe that Litecoin and or Monero are going to exist, then you don't believe in the 21 Bitcoin limit. You don't want a limit. Satoshi should have created infinite inflation because that's what you want if you believe in Litecoin and Monero to coexist with Bitcoin. Yeah, I I agree. I think there's a a huge amount of overlap between like multi-coiners, as I call them, or all coiners, and essentially like inflationist Keynesian ideology that is against sound money or skeptical of the uh, utility and necessity of sound money. And, and lately, we've been seeing them uh, accuse Bitcoin maximalists of being rude or toxic or stupid. Uh, you know, there's all sorts of accusations that are getting thrown our way. And w- what do you make of like the, the, the tribalism that we're accused of? Um, well, I'm, it, it's worse than that for me because I've been like bearish for a little while now with the current downtrend. So like, I'm I like, th- those are like the, those are the trolls are, that are always get, almost being dro- like drowned out by other Bitcoin maximalists that are mad at me that I'm not pumping the price of Bitcoin. Right. Yeah. So it, it's even worse in my case, but, uh, but yeah, it like, it really fascinates me. Sometimes, and a lot of these people have no idea what they're talking about. Uh, so I'm, I'm starting to almost ignore them. But um, like right now, like I said, my, my, current, uh, my current arguments are with people that were in full agreement with me three months ago that are now pissed at me and are accusing me of, you know, like forcing the price of Bitcoin down. <laughs> Yeah, that that's that seems kind of silly to me in the sense that I don't think that any one person uh, can influence the price of bitcoins. And even like when someone like Jamie Dimon c- came out, you know, during the bull market and was poo-pooing it at you know four thousand dollars or whatever it was, that, that didn't stop the run-up, uh, even if it caused like a two percent dip that day. Uh, you know, one person can't affect the price, and but. I think that there is definitely like cultural pressure within the tribe uh, to be perma bullish. And I, 
I, you know, I'm, I'm definitely uh, open to the accusation of being a perma bull. I, I'm bullish, you know, whether the price is $19,000 or whether it's $8,000 like it is today. But I that's mean, just I, because... I, I personally only want Bitcoin charts and widgets and stuff that show me the Bitcoin price going up. So if it's going down, don't tell me at all. But if it's gone down a lot, you know, say it drops by 70%, but then there's a 2% increase, tell me that all day. I only yeah. want to see good news. Uh, and really, the, the it, I just have a long-term perspective on it. And so it's it's easy to kind of be a long-term bull and to be excited about it um, while not really having a particular view on the day-to-day or the month-to-month. And the day-to-day and the month-to-month matters for traders. It's important. Um, but for you know people like me who are somewhere in between like Bitcoin politicians slash philosophers slash developers, I don't have the nerve to be actively trading. And uh, I'm honest with myself on that. Like when the price was at $19,000, I was having a, a mental breakdown. Like I was so excited and giddy. There's no way I could make a sane trading decision. Uh, and so I, I just stay out of the game entirely. And I'm just purely in the uh, buy and hodl mindset. But uh it's I, I don't think that I don't think that people should give you grief because, well, OK, what is your bearish view? Is it kind of a 2018 isn't going to turn out as well as 2017 or uh, is it that we're going to zero? Well, no, I'm not that bearish on it. Um, I mean, I'm still hoping that 48, 48, 4900 will reverse us back to the upside. Uh, now, I don't know how swift that reversal is going to be. Uh, I am seeing 2018 to be more like 2014, where my worst case scenario is back to the prior all-time high of 12, 1300, which would hurt, but it's not going to destroy Bitcoin. It'll it'll purge a lot of the bad companies out and a lot of bad ideas out, like it did in 2014. But then it also, you know, brought Ethereum in. So who knows? Yeah, it brought Ethereum in. It, it, it also. It, it does do psychological damage to some Bitcoiners as well. Um, I think that like Bcash was born in the bear market, the previous bear market, uh, even though it really, you know, came into reality um, and manifested itself in the world uh, during the bull market. I think that the psychology of it, like people were telling me that to increase the, the price, the, the value of Bitcoin, you know, when it was at like $500, uh, we need to increase the block size limit for marketing reasons so that it, it looks better. And in fact, um, I remember Jeff Garzik was spreading this theory called uh, the um, the fidelity effect, which is that, oh, fidelity wants to use Bitcoin, but they can't because of the block size limit, which I was complete and utter nonsense. But uh, he was spreading that around as propaganda to try to do a hard fork. But well. Yeah. I don't know, like in hindsight, I mean, look, we're back. Like the mempool is nowhere near full. Um, like I, I just don't understand why we're the, I mean, the only, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, right? I'm not going to, I'm not going to say these guys are on a mission to destroy Bitcoin itself, right? Like I'm not going that far, but like I'm trying to think what is there, what is this insane fascination with the block size limit ever since 2015, before they were even full the first time around. And I think it comes down to, you know, 
people like Gavin Andreessen, people like Mike Hearn, people like Jeff Garzik, people that were at one point, you know, considered as, you know, the smart core developers have been totally pushed out by really actually smart core developers. And this was like their way of firing or, you know, voting the strong guy off the island so that they have a chance. Yeah, there's a couple of interesting things with that. I notice uh, even today, I constantly hear from, uh, you know, B-cachers um, about the one megabyte block size limit, which has now not existed since Bcash came out because it was, it was that day that, you know, SegWit came out. And now, you know, we've seen some very large blocks. Um, such a limit simply doesn't exist. So they use it as a, as a uh, total straw man. Uh, but what's also interesting is, yeah, there continues to be this, uh, I, I almost think of it as a very naive way of looking at scaling, because when I think of Bitcoin scaling, there's so much infrastructure that needs to be built around, you know, everything from key management to, um, you know, actual trusted networks between the actual institutions that want to to uh, work with Bitcoin and work with customers on Bitcoin. Um, there's just so much to do that to focus in on a single number um, is actually one of the the laziest ways to be thinking about scaling. Yeah, yeah. There's there's uh, and wallet user interfaces as well. Absolutely. What, what's really I, I find amusing also is that now that the Bcash camp is spinning out of control, because even w- among themselves, you have people who are like, oh let's stream videos on the blockchain and like, let's just stuff op return data with uh, Netflix. And then others are like, well, you know, that, that might not be a good idea. Like let's, let's think about a better way to do that. And then they're accused. Well, if the, of if the block size limit, else. if the block block size limit is uh, arbitrary, then it seems like the op return uh, limit would also be arbitrary. So we should probably raise all of it to, um, an infinite size. Which is like I will say that if the like, if the people, if Bitcoin Core support, supporters were as malicious and as trolly as the big blockers, we would have spammed the shit out of their chain to the point of absurdity. Like somebody would have already wrote a script, like backing up every crypto kitty on the Bitcoin blockchain. Um, with an exponential factor on top of it, right? Like, like it's just that no one that, that, that with the capability to do that as a Bitcoin Core supporter wants to waste their time because they don't really have anything to gain because they know that disaster is going to zero anyway. Uh, so no one wants to waste their time. On the flip side, these guys do nothing all day but try to write scripts and spam the Bitcoin mempool until the current situation where that's no longer feasible as uh, more and more companies are using batch transactions and they're using SegWit and Lightning's around the corner. So I think, I think it's done. Well, I th- I, we must, uh, well, first of all, uh, you know, thanks for revealing that Pierre and I are actually just not nice guys and not total trolls. Uh, <laughs> but on the other hand, you know, you know, I have to thank, when you frame it like that, I have to thank Bcash for offering us all of the free uh, stress testing that they've uh, paid for and given us. Uh, because it's allowed our network to just go grow stronger and stronger. So thank you, Bcash. But it, it does bother me that they control Bitcoin.com and the Bitcoin Twitter handle. It's just this like brand confusion. That does bother me a little bit, but 
at the end of the day, all they will do is they will prove to the world not to go to internet.com to learn the internet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely the silver lining to it, which is uh, it provides an early lesson to noobs that there, there's no official Bitcoin. Uh, Bitcoin is a kind of a social consensus and a network consensus, peer-to-peer network consensus. And there's no, yeah, the, the, the Bitcoin.com itself is a complete fraud. Bitcoin.org has been slipping into that lately, I think with some of the uh, noise I've heard from Cobra. Um, well, but, I, I think it, we should be clear that uh, that that hasn't been reflected on the website itself. Um, except, except for a brief moment when they had a knots as the uh, yes yeah that, that was I was going to bring that one up yeah. but generally speaking it hasn't it hasn't had uh, we we should generally separate uh, Cobra's public statements on Twitter from what has actually shown on the Bitcoin website although it does give you concern about uh, what might happen in the future because you know it is up to the owner of a domain to decide what gets shown. Yeah, and also I think Cobra, like uh, after the the how long mining little incident last week, and uh, I I don't know if you guys saw my tweet from yesterday. Uh, I took a picture Tell with a bunch it. of how long miners, so they do exist, and they do I, I've seen them as well. I think I've seen the same ones as you have. Yeah. Um. So I don't have one yet. I still I still run my Canon miner, but uh, yeah, I got to get my hands on one of those sooner or later. You know, speaking of mining, uh, we got some news today that. Earn.com has been acquired by Coinbase, and Earn.com used to be 21, used to be uh, 21 Co., which oh was a mining hardware. They used to have their own like mining uh, server farm, uh, and then they created the uh, little mining USB um, miner, and then they abandoned that altogether. But I, you know, people were congratulating them on being acquired by Coinbase, but I feel like they could have been the Hellong Mining or the Bitmain uh, of the U.S. Uh, do you agree, Tone? Like, was there a missed opportunity there, or were they just in a tough spot? I mean, they they could have been uh, if the company was actually ran by someone who knew what they were doing in the space of mining, right? I mean, how long mining was an initiative by BTC Drac, who's a Bitcoin core developer and has been around the space and forever and probably mined back in the day and he understands the ecosystem. Uh, 21 was started by Balaji, who last I heard was going to go and be like the FDA chair or something for the US government, right? So again, like, um, like what experience do you have running it? Like what experience does Brian Armstrong have running his current company and now buying this failed company, like what the hell is Coinbase doing? Well, I, my understanding is that they're they're both financed by A16Z, so I, it seems as though like Coinbase was told to acquire Earn.com uh, to to save face and also to get Bellagio as the CTO of Coinbase. Now, I don't know, I don't know if Bellagio's on on board with CryptoKitties or not. Uh, his his Twitter banner is the Federal Reserve uh, chair, per, former Federal Reserve chairperson uh, Janet Yellen, with uh, the "Buy Bitcoin" sign behind her. So that's a promising Twitter banner, but I don't know if he's going to get more into the Toshi and the Ether and the Crypto Kitties, or if he's going to double down on Bitcoin and try to get the tech team focused on that instead. I guess that's uh, TBD. 
Yeah, I, I it amazes me how like Coinbase still look around. Like uh, it's, it's it's I mean it's it's like our favorite punching bag on all of our YouTube channels. It definitely it's I I consider it to be the AOL of Bitcoin. Um and it's funny because people say oh Bitcoin is the MySpace of cryptocurrencies and Ethereum is Facebook or whatever. But really I think that the more realistic analysis is that something like Coinbase is the AOL. And I, I just I hope that as as Coinbase and uh, companies like them diversify into various shit coins, that it opens up a space for Bitcoin maximalist um, exchanges and brokerages that really want to focus on providing high quality Bitcoin fiat uh, on ramps and off ramps. I, I don't know if that's unrealistic, but uh, I hope that's what happens. Yeah, we'll see. Uh, we will see. But it's, uh, I don't know, it's a rough proposition, like interfacing with banks. I mean, that's not thats not what I would want to do in this space. Uh, but I don't know. Well, we'll see where it goes. I mean, the majority of people still use Coinbase. Uh, we'll see where it goes from there. I mean, I'm still, you know, the hardcore guy telling people not to use, you know, bank uh, connected means of using Bitcoin. Just let, let's see what happens. I have no idea which way the regulation is going to swing. And these ICOs are not helping. The, the problem with, so like, you know, I guess the alternative you're hinting at is something like local Bitcoins. Yeah. The, the issue is that it's, it's more expensive, right? And people just end up looking at the... Not, not at the moment. <laughs> no? Okay. I haven't looked recently. I remember there being a bit of a spread uh, between uh, Coinbase and local Bitcoins. But if that's changed, then uh, it might be a yeah, good there, idea. Yeah, there is some spread. There is some spread unless, yeah. unless you want to, you know, like, like be a little picky. But yeah, there is a spread, right? But like, you, but that's, you pay for anonymity. Right. And we're seeing now that, you know, it's April 16th. Uh, tomorrow is tax day. Although, you know, it's like, wait, why isn't it today? But anyway, Um and that that's where the anonymity anonymity can possibly pay off, which is that uh, Coinbase provides a huge amount of data to the IRS. And then the IRS is just going to look at all that data and see who they want to pick on and see who, who they want to audit. And the, the crazy part is that Coinbase has this data, but they don't have all of your data. So they don't know if you actually, you know, how much you sold and how much you bought because it's spread out between different exchanges and, you know, you, you could have been sending between your own wallets. Right. Um, well, it, uh, the, the, it should have been. Like, uh, I, I've said it from day one. I've said it back in 2014. And Coinbase quasi followed this policy and it's the only policy to follow. Um, if you bought on Coinbase and you moved it out of Coinbase, they have to assume that you sold it. They absolutely have to. It has to get reported to the IRS from Coinbase when you got in through Coinbase and when you got out. And when you got out, they have to assume it's a sale. The reason it has to be done this way, and people like were arguing with me over it, the reason why it has to be done this way is because if they're wrong, you can easily prove that you still have the Bitcoin. But if it's done the other way, you can't prove that you no longer have the Bitcoin. Right. Right. Like you can prove a positive. You can't prove a negative. And that's a strong argument for using local Bitcoins. So that yeah, so you don't even you don't have, have to be in this debate. 
Yeah. Yeah. Um, because even if, and even if you're not trying to evade taxes, it's just that you're going to have to deal with an IRS audit, Mm uh, because Coinbase was reporting data that you're, you're right, that that's the best possible data, but ultimately it was false. Um, but they don't know that, right? right, I mean, like, unless you want to provide them the details of what you're doing with that Bitcoin then after, and nobody wants to do that either. No, that's even worse. Right. So that's what you have. And yeah. you know what? That, that's how stock market is treated as well. You know, uh, but no one ever moves their stock out and puts them in their safe. You know, it just no one does that. Hey, uh, while we're on the topic of taxes, there's been uh, some theories out there about how for 2017, it was OK to report uh, trades as like kind. That is that you wouldn't pay uh, on, on the capital gains. Uh, between cryptocurrencies. Do you, do you think that that's going to hold up? No, it's ridiculous. Um, it, it doesn't matter what you're trading. Like you can be trading basketball cards. It's irrelevant, right? Like if you're making money, if you're making money on trading basketball cards, you're supposed to report that income. Now, if you think that you can get away with not reporting that income, you're not going to report that income, right? Like uh, I remember like when Bitcoin on Sensor podcast was going on, they always used to say it's your patriotic duty to pay your taxes. And I used to change that. Well, it's your patriotic duty to pay the least amount of taxes you can legally get away with. And that's why you pay, you know, higher priced accountants, because I will always find more, you know, useful things to do with my money than the government. So uh, the lowest amount of taxes I can legally pay with my CPA putting together my tax, uh, my, my tax return, uh, the better off the, you know, the U.S. economy is. Uh, so, so that's my view on it. Right. But no, it, it doesn't matter what you make money on. You know, um, you can be going to garage sales and, you know, buying a bunch of old junk and then reselling it on eBay. If you're making money on that, you're supposed to pay taxes on that. So, yeah, so that doesn't change when you're moving around old coins, like the, the underlying asset that you, that you flipping is completely irrelevant. Yeah. Another blow to the idea that Bitcoin cash is Bitcoin. <laughs> yeah, and it's funny because I, I did see someone say that the strongest argument for like kind is uh, between Bitcoin cash and Bitcoin. And even that I, I don't think would hold up very well. No, no, none, none of it is going to hold up. Um, and the IRS isn't what you have to worry about. I mean, look, the worst that will ever happen with the IRS is they will figure out that you didn't pay your taxes. They will send you a letter uh, with their estimate of how much they think you owe them. And you can disagree and you can counter them and you can argue with them and you can offer them probably a slightly lower, like, hey, you guys see my bank account? I can't afford that. Let's negotiate, right? Yeah. Like the worst that can happen is you pay the difference that they say you owe them plus a little bit of a fine. They just want their money back. The, the problem that you want to avoid is FinCEN is, their, is your biggest problem and the SEC is your second biggest problem. Like the SEC doesn't actually put people in jail, but FinCEN does. So you really want to avoid money transmission laws. And the, uh, again, I'm not a lawyer, but from what I, but like we're all slowly becoming like lawyers and legal experts <laughs> and accountants. It's really amazing, right? Did you ever think you'd know so much about money laundering and money transmission before you got into Bitcoin? Yeah, no. <laughs> but uh, like the interesting thing there is like this whole idea of money transmission. 
Like if you're a local Bitcoin dealer and you're flipping like $100 values, let's say you're like the lowest of the low, right? You're running around the city, you're buying one or $200 worth of Bitcoin from this guy, selling one or $200 worth of Bitcoin from another guy. If this is pretty much your job, then you are a money transmitter. The amount doesn't actually matter. This $10,000 limit doesn't actually apply. You can be running around selling 100 bucks here and there, and you got to comply with money transmission laws. On the flip side, if you're an early Bitcoin adopter and you want to buy or sell like you know a million dollars worth of Bitcoin, the money transmission law doesn't apply because that's not actually your job. You're not flipping Bitcoin back and forth. So if you're an early Bitcoin adopter, from my understanding, you can sell $100,000 worth of Bitcoin a few times a year uh, as long as you're not actually buying from one place, selling to another. It's not your job. You're not flipping Bitcoin. You're just cashing out. Uh, then you don't have to deal with FinCEN. You just got to deal with the IRS on at what price you acquired it and how much you profited. It's telling how all of the laws seem to, to point to hodling as the, the way to go. <laughs> To, right. To I mean, it's uh, it's like the libertarian dream, right? You huddle until there's a complete financial collapse and then there's no one <laughs> there's no one to stop you and you cashing out. Uh, the problem with that dream that we all had for gold before we got into Bitcoin, as I learned in 2008, the problem with that dream is when the society and the economics actually starts to collapse, your gold also starts to collapse because no one has the money to buy your gold and you're trying to sell it at any price you can to buy food or, you know, pay the heating bill if you're out in New York. Uh, not, not a problem over there in Texas, uh, though at night it does get unreasonably cold, by the way. Uh, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so what happened during the 2008 financial crisis is that gold fell 33%, mostly because that anyone that had gold had to sell it to live on it. So your gold isn't going up. So be careful about this dream of the collapse of America for your Bitcoin to be this infinite value because you may have problems finding someone with money that wants to buy it. Absolutely. I think the the doomsday, you know, scenarios need to be pushed back on. You know, I'm I'm not in Bitcoin because I want to see the collapse of society. I'm in Bitcoin because I want to see society grow by having a better money. Um, so yeah, I, I agree. Yeah, go ahead, Pierre. Uh, well, that I think that really uh, shows the contrast between a kind of a deflationary debt uh, collapse like we saw in 2008 and an inflationary like transition to a new currency because uh, there, like in an inflationary scenario, the debt actually becomes worthless. Uh, in a deflationary scenario, the debt becomes increasingly onerous uh, until you end up defaulting on it and then you get your house taken away. Um, and so... My hope is that uh, Donald Trump, bless his heart, uh, does a great job of debasing the dollar, devaluing the dollar, trying to compete with you know the Russians and and China. Uh, yeah. That he makes the dollar worthless uh, rather than uh, causing a deflationary debt crisis like we had in '08. Um, yeah, they're, they're both they're both bad when they start to get out of control. Like you don't want Argentina, you don't want Venezuela. You want it to be noticeable and slow. You want people to like notice the fact that your dollar is actually devaluing in money, uh, and looking for alternatives. If it happens too fast and no one has the money to buy it, 
And uh, there's not that much deflation. I mean, look, I've lived in New York for 15, 20 years now. Yeah, things are a little bit more expensive. And uh, my dad was just complaining today about the gas prices going up. And I'm like, yeah, but you know, you don't remember what happened like eight years ago when oil went to $150 a barrel and gas was like way more expensive, like eight or nine years ago than it is now. Uh, like things aren't that much more expensive. But as long as as long as the people think, you know, things are getting a little more expensive. But I noticed those Bitcoiners are still eating ribeyes every night. Maybe <laughs> I should check out what they're up to. Yeah, no, no, no. I'm a, like in my head, Bitcoin is going significantly lower. I was staying at a hostel over in Austin. But that's also because your real estate like renting is unreasonable. Like I don't understand. It's Austin. I came to uh, I went to Austin. I was in Vancouver and then I was in San Francisco and two of the most expensive real estates in the world. And then I get to Austin and I'm like, I, there's no way I'm paying $250 a night for a hotel room. Uh, it, was, it was ridiculous. Like that's not it. I paid half that in both San Fran and Vancouver. Was that in the, the downtown area? Yeah, I was downtown by 6th Street. Uh, so I ended up at, uh, at one of the hostels, like 50 bucks a night. I'll take it. I've never been in the hostel before. It was, a, it was an experience. Should do a podcast on it. Yeah, you'll meet interesting people at a hostel. <laughs> Uh, so on the note, uh, you were talking about, you know, the, your your bear market thesis. And in my mind, it's like either we're in 2013 when it was like April or May or whatever it was where, you know, we had a run up to $270 and then we had a bear market until December when it went up to $1,200. And so that was like a really short, shallow bear market um, or we're in the other scenario where it was, you know, from $1,200 in a long grind down to like $250. And that was like a deep, long bear market. So I'm in the latter camp. Yeah. Uh, I'm in the latter camp for two reasons. And I've actually, I've recently had this conversation. So Mm -hmm. I'm in the latter camp for two reasons. One of them is the time period matches so much better for starters, right? Because that bubble came in December. This one came in around the same time, December. That one came in like late November. This one came in mid-December. So it was only about two weeks off. Uh, so far, they're acting almost in tandem. The reason why I don't think it's the 2013 one is because we, we actually had legitimate drivers of price to 266. Uh, there were... Uh, the, the specific event that took place during that bubble was Cyprus. Uh, okay. I, I know this very well because that's when I was buying my first Bitcoin. And, and the other thing you have to realize on that bubble to 266, uh, we went from 266 down to $55 in like five days. We literally dropped 75 or 80% in five days. That did not happen. Uh, this time around in February, right? Um, I, I would have considered the 2013 scenario if we would have fell from 20,000 and bottomed out at 3,000 like a week later. And then I'm like, all right, bottoms in, you yeah. know? Uh, and now we can grind back up for the rest of the year. But keep in mind, if that happened, had we fallen from 20K down to about two or 3,000, Everybody would be happy right now with this $8,000 mark, including myself, and I would be screaming, bull, bull, bull. But that didn't happen. And now we're sitting near the lows. 
I mean, we're way closer to the low of 6,000 than we are to the high of 20,000. So as long as we're closer to the low than the high, I have to assume that we're going to go lower. Like it's, a, it's like I say, the, you'll be the best weatherman in the world if your forecast for tomorrow is always the same weather as today. You will be correct way more often uh, than guessing what tomorrow is actually going to be. So as long as we're like trending around the lows, I have to assume lower prices. And uh, for those two reasons, I'm, uh, I'm leaning to the latter 2014 bear market than that we're in 2013. So now, do, do you think that for our audience that price prognostications should translate into trading activity? No, not necessarily. I mean, um, I, uh, I do not trade Bitcoin for multiple reasons. Uh, two of the biggest reasons being uh, one of them, I really don't want to trade a 24-7 market uh, that I have no time to trade. Like even if I had the time, uh, if I wasn't traveling, if none of you knew my name, uh, I, I don't know if I would want to trade a 24-7 market. I used to trade futures, which wasn't exactly 24-7, but close. Futures trade 24-7, but there was like three to four hour stretches where there's zero volume activity going on. But I've traded these markets and they're kind of stressful. I wasn't having fun. I switched my trading around to trade something more reasonable. I like the stock market because it closes. So, But because I'm so busy and flying all the time, there's no way I'm going to trade a 24-7 market. That's one reason. Uh, the other reason is I don't want to risk my Bitcoin. I've lost enough Bitcoin to stupid decisions that involved you know, letting somebody else hold my private keys. I'm not going to do it again, right? So uh, if I do trade Bitcoin, it's going to be in the CME future space uh, that isn't uh, putting my own Bitcoin at risk. Uh, so for those two reasons, I don't trade Bitcoin. But I love uh, you know, forecasting the price of Bitcoin. Obviously, I want to be right. Obviously, I grow my, my popularity because that's kind of what I do. I'm a podcaster. But more so, like for example, another reason why I stayed at a hostel while I was in Austin last, this whole week uh, was because I'm not very optimistic about the price of Bitcoin. And I think I'm going to be significantly poorer in the months to come. And I'm already preparing for that, right? Like if, uh, if Bitcoin was trading at like 20,000 right now and I thought it was going to go higher and higher, I probably would have been flying, you know, business class and staying at nicer places. So I think it's important to have an idea of where the Bitcoin price is going so that you can properly adjust your standard of living when all of your income and all of your life revolves around Bitcoin. Uh, so for me, it's very, very important, even though I don't trade. Uh, so hopefully that will like, answer a couple of questions for people that yeah. uh, don't understand why I do what I do. What's fascinating to me and what you just said is that it goes so contrary to the mainstream economic theory, which is that um, when the price of Bitcoin is going up, that is when it's quote unquote deflationary, right? The purchasing power of Bitcoin is going up and standard economic theory would state that, oh, well, people are going to spend less uh, because they expect it to continue to go up. And so the, you know, they're going to wait until the value goes up. The reality is that you have the wealth effect, which is that you feel wealthier. If, you, know, you feel more certain about the future. So you go and you, you spend a little more than you otherwise would, which has been the case for me personally. And also mm -hmm. the data backs that up. Oh, uh, when I worked at BitPay, we saw that the price was 100% correlated with people's spending. 
And you just described the reverse, which is that the value of Bitcoins is going down. Standard economic theory would say, oh, that's inflation, right? Your purchasing power is go down. So you're going to want to get rid of your Bitcoins and go spend them. The reality is that you're like, oh, I'm getting poorer. I'm going to get poorer. I need to cut it, you know, restrain my spending and not not give away cheap Bitcoins. I should be accumulating cheap Bitcoins. Right. Right. Um, so it really turns things on its head. Yeah, those economists need to be introduced to the one Lambo meme. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah, they've never done donuts with a Lambo on the moon. Uh, <laughs> and so Paul Krugman has missed out on a life experience there. But at least he's not in a cult. Yeah. <laughs> that is true. Yeah. So uh, actually, Tony, what do, you, what do you think of the accusation the Bitcoin maximalists are in a cult? I think it's absolutely crazy because like well, there's no leaders here. Like I I've I've agreed with Greg Maxwell and went and called Luke Dash Jr. crazy. And I've agreed with Luke Dash Jr. and said why is Greg so anti-user activated software? And um to uh to people that you know don't like that, they go, oh, he's a flip-flopper, he doesn't he can't make up his own mind. But in reality, no. I make up my mind based on the issue at hand. Uh, I got into this debate with Roger Veer when um, he's sitting, we're debating uh, on a podcast and he's talking about, you know, following Satoshi, everything Satoshi, and then accuses me of obedience to authority to Bitcoin Core when I say, well, my like obedience to authority in Bitcoin Core is kind of similar to my doctor or my dentist or Anyone else that's an expert at something that I'm not, like I'm not going to go to the nearest uh, nuclear power plant that provides energy for the, my neighborhood and tell them how to run their reactor. Like that's not exactly my area of expertise and I don't want to do that. So I equate it to that. Like I leave it up to the scientists to tell me there is, of course, a probability that the leading group of scientists uh, could be wrong and that could be challenged by one person. And again, these things happen all the time. Like Einstein went against uh, certain theories and was right. Uh, you know, uh, Newton with gravity, you know, uh, Copernicus. We, we can go throughout history. But and, and today we have Shaolin Fry. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, he didn't go against uh, the consensus. He just like threw in the user activated software stuff. But, but like even Satoshi himself, right? He went and solved the problem that the majority of the scientific programming community thought was impossible, right? The double spending problem uh, in data. And he potentially solved it. So um, I agree that these things happen, right? They happen about as often, uh, they happen even less often than college or high school dropouts uh, building multi-billion dollar companies, you know, from Bill Gates to Steve Jobs to Zuckerberg was a college dropout. But what people don't understand that, uh, that the correlation doesn't work the other way around, right? Like, like the reason why Steve Jobs and Bill Gates and Mark Zuckerberg dropped out of college and built these, you know, giant companies is because they were too smart for college, right? What we have here is people that are too dumb for college thinking that they are going to change the world. Um, it doesn't work that way. And you get this one in a generation person 
that solves this unique problem. And somehow people think that they can also do the same, right? Or this guy has proven to me personally that he's smart and he will be the next Satoshi, right? Like, like this is the problem we run into. Like, like these are true black swan events, like generational events. And you just gotta, and that's not gonna happen again. There's not gonna be another Satoshi in our lifetime. Well, your your comments on authority, you know, brought this thought to mind, which is that, you know, we do have sort of authority figures in the, the Bitcoin core cult, so to speak. You know, we have these people that we look up to, sometimes agree, sometimes don't agree, like, you know, Greg Maxwell and Peter Woolley and Luke Dash um, and all, all of these people. But all of these people we can actually give feedback to. Right. And then you have monster trolls like Peter Todd who give everybody, you know, crap, right? So like they're, they're checking each other. Exactly. But then when you go to the, the Bcash side, um, you know, there, there tends to be a heavy focus on Satoshi's original vision. And uh, as much as we all, you know, love and revere Satoshi, uh, Satoshi's not around anymore. And it, they're really giving authority over to a completely abstract concept and whoever uh, can do the best, you know, sort of uh, persuasive or propaganda job at, at presenting themselves as the, uh, the, the sort of voice for Satoshi. Um, so I, you know, being the libertarian I am, I, I have to prefer the authority structure of the core cult instead of the cash cult. Well, right, because also the cash cult is looking at the Satoshi white paper like they're looking at the Bible or the Quran, and it becomes who can interpret this holy book better, and that's who's right. The, yeah, the, yeah you, you, I like that metaphor. Um, my metaphor is that the white paper is like the Declaration of Independence, um, but ultimately the source code is the Constitution. And our government is, isn't based on the Declaration of Independence. Like that, that, you're not going to really understand the federal government if you read the Declaration of Independence. You're going to understand it if you read the Constitution, um, up to a point, right? But uh, in, the, in the case of Bitcoin, uh, you're going to understand Bitcoin uh, up to the point that you understand that, hey, this source code is being run by other nodes on the network and is establishing the peer-to-peer network consensus uh, that people are agreeing to. Yeah, in fact, you know, reading the white paper, I didn't learn anything about how you know Bitcoin networking actually happens. Yeah, I was just told you know it's a thing that's out there, but you actually have to look into the code to even know how your peer communicates with other peers. Yeah, no, I agree. I also feel like my my biggest pet peeve is the whole ideology of oh the only true nodes are mining nodes and that just completely drives me nuts because yeah anyway uh, we don't have to get into it on this well, right, clearly again, it's not true. again this gets into the bible interpretation mechanism because when that bible was written it was assumed one cpu one vote yeah. The ASICs thing was not exactly, you know, thought of well enough ahead. So under the situation where every single wallet is a node, yes, but that's not what we have now. 
but at the same time, in a way, with the the way you know, from what we see with UASF, in a way, it is one CPU, one vote. I have a CPU behind me running uh, that got to vote no to two X. Well, right, right, but you're not a, but it's not a mining one, right? But exactly. it was right. That, it was under, point. right. It was under the assumption that you know your CPU is a vote, but when your CPU is useless, what else do you do? Like so, so yeah. So I like the new model. Um, and, uh, no, I, I, I do think that's what it should be. I, there is a little bit of a debate there. There is, there's a little bit of a debate there. Right. And what I'm saying, a little bit of a debate, and this is the problem. This is why I kind of stopped debating a lot of these people. And this is why if I, whenever I have like ICO guys or real old coiners on my channel, it's more of a like satirical thing and they don't realize <laughs> that I'm, uh, that, that I'm kind of trolling them the whole interview. I try not to do that because like, I hate giving like 10% of an idea, 50% of the voice. It's like, I will never argue with a flat earther on my YouTube channel because they're just ridiculous. Right. Um, or a creationist because like, look, I don't want to give you 50% of the platform for like a 1% of, you know, less than 1% of, uh, I mean, it's of people that believe in this. So definitely less than 1%. So it's, it becomes this thing. It's like, man, why are we wasting our time arguing something that's totally ridiculous? Now, in this case, uh, whether it should be a mining node or anyone should run a node, I think it's a little more than 1%. I mean, there is a little bit of a debate there. But again, how much platform do you want to give these people? Right. And it's also just the, the context of, of the argument being made in the first place. So, you know, I've, I've heard Peter Todd in, a, in an old scaling uh, presentation, probably from like 2013 or 2014, uh, I think it was in San Francisco. Um, you know, he, he talked about, you know, the, the sort of benefits you get from running a mining uh, node, which is that if you want to make sure you don't get censored, you have to uh, run a mining node if you want to like because if you have uh, a mining node at some point probability wise you'll be able to get your transaction into the blockchain but otherwise there's a limit to that but that's that's a very different way of uh, approaching well, that a mining no uh, a mining node on a pool that believes in what you believe then yes a mining node on your own you'll never get that transaction oh of of course of course uh, the point is, is, is that, that context of thinking about, uh, you know, what what are the different things? What are what are the different trust levels at different nodes? That's very different from how uh, they're doing it, which is I, I tend to view it as as rather uh, malicious and or just simply propagandist rather than. Well, I, I also just I just see the converse, which is that. There are miners in the in the past, I don't know that that's the case today, who were doing headers only mining. And essentially, we're not running a full node and we're not verifying, you know, everything. And so it's like, okay, well, you can say that, oh, only miners are full nodes, but we have empirical evidence that there were miners that were not running full nodes. But those and aren't so, real miners. <laughs> who, who is the counterbalance to them, if not us? If not the people who are transacting with full nodes, and so and in fact, if we unless we yeah, because unless we have full nodes, we don't even know if the miners have full nodes or not. No, and it was more than fifty percent <laughs> of the miners, so they could have just like done whatever the hell they wanted to and mined whatever they wanted to. And and the whole point is that miners mine 
you know, Bitcoin is like the, the most work valid chain. And then it's like, all right, well, what is a valid chain if we don't actually run full? Anyway. By the way, Peter Todd, if you're watching, I apologize if I said anything that uh, <laughs> uh, uh, misrepresented your view. Don't yeah. don't hurt me on Twitter. He'll and he'll hurt you too. He, he and you know, as Tone was saying, like he was he was hurting the uh, lightning people. He was putting their feet to the fire, uh, and I think that's entirely appropriate. Um, and it really shows like how silly the accusation of being a cult is when. Uh, we have people that are one of our uh, most highly respected people, by the way. Yeah, one of our gurus is, <laughs> uh, is engaging in some criticism. And this is uh, the the lightning one was another you know kind of example of this. It's just looking at the the ways in which people are approaching these things. Peter Peter is not attacking lightning, from what I can tell, from a anti-lightning position he's trying to give it a fair analysis to see what exactly are the trade-offs that we have to look at and accept if we want to use this network uh as opposed to the the anti-cultists who simply just hate lightning and and actually at this point seem to want to see it fail right right and i i have not added the lightning bolt to my twitter handle uh, because I have not sent a lightning transaction yet, and I would feel like a complete hypocrite <laughs> if I did that prematurely. But when I do, I will add it, and uh, I'll well, make sure to make it public. And and when you do, can you please let me know how to do that? Because like I looked, I, I gave it like five minutes. I'm like, I have no more time for this. How the hell do you even add one? I, I've given it significantly more than five minutes. Oh, wait, are you talking about the Twitter handle or sending a lightning transaction? No, no, the tw- adding the lightning bolt to your Twitter handle. You got to copy paste it. You, yeah, I, I, <laughs> I think yeah. there's a Unicode. It's a Unicode yeah. character. Okay, I yes, so. I've gotten to that. No, I haven't sent a lightning transaction either. Uh, I got to figure out how to set up my own. I mean, look, it's going to be easier. Like, I don't even want to waste my time. It's like someone is going to give me a nice lightning wallet, but I've been waiting for a nice phone wallet and I'm so frustrated. Uh, is there any like like phone wallet that you guys like? I don't remember the last time I used a phone wallet. I can't say I, I have a need to be spending Bitcoins anywhere. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm still using my credit card. <laughs> Man, I use, guys... I use the, the Fiat Lightning Network <laughs> yeah. called Visa. Yeah, no, I got I, I really do wish that there was like, I mean, it's hard, right? These things don't exactly make money, right? So it's, it's, it's hard. And, and people keep talking about how the world is going to be decentralized. Guys, I can't even get like a good like like Bitcoin phone wallet. And you guys are going to talk about someone is going to have an incentive to run a decentralized exchange. Someone is going to have an incentive to run a decentralized Uber. Oh, yeah. What happens when two cars crash into each other? Um, who's going to be, uh, you know, fixing that problem? Like it, it, this whole concept of everything is going to be decentralized. is just ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. And it- we're 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 struggling with bitcoin you know uh and yeah that's like the most compelling use case for something being decentralized not only the most compelling use case the most like smart number of engineers try to work on it on top of that yeah absolutely this is like a a good framing i don't think i thought about you know because we were talking about 2014 2015 that's when the block size debate was happening and one of the products of that was uh, Ethereum. And yeah, it is interesting that your response to the fact that Bitcoin, the, the biggest product, 
um, is having the hardest time with this, this scaling debate from their perspective. The, the correct answer is somehow, let's go make an infinitely more complex system. And somehow that's a good idea. Yeah, exactly. Like clearly like engineers are having trouble with to, you know, some people think is, is the most obvious problem. But somehow, you know, we'll solve, yeah, decentralizing literally everything with, you know, ERC-20 tokens. Yeah, exactly. All right, guys, this was a lot of fun. Uh, We got to do it again. Uh, And we're coming up on the top of the hour here. So, Tone, thanks for coming on. Yeah, no, this was great. I'm happy to come on again when uh, maybe, hopefully, I'll be bullish on the price the next time I come on. Uh, but that would be great. But uh, if people are looking for my work, you can just Google Tone Vase on YouTube. Uh, I've been focusing on uh, my YouTube channel more so than my Twitter. Uh, and you can always find me on Twitter as Tone Vase and my website, libertylifetrail.com, soon to be converted to tonevase.com. And uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. Otherwise, watch out for me coming to a city near you, speaking at a Bitcoin event or teaching one of my workshops so that people can be better traders. My last question for you. When do you think that the next Bitcoin bull market is going to start? Uh, You know what? It's an impossible question to answer because I haven't yet decided when the current bear market is going to bottom. So uh, my best guess is in the fall, like probably around October. Um, Like we're not going to have exactly the same. It can't be too similar to 2014. Uh, so there will be some instances of 2013, 2014, uh, but somewhere around October into November, I can see another bull market towards the end of the year. We saw that in 2013 as well. Like the Silk Road got shut down on October 1st, and it was nothing but up from 80 bucks all the way to 1200 uh, back in 2013. This past November, December, we did very well. Uh, so I really do think that by um, early fall, we can start going up, uh, but we'll see. Well, I'll, I'll keep everyone posted. Everyone will know my views on it. With, with that in mind, I recommend all of our listeners go uh, go read Mastering Bitcoin by Andreas Antonopoulos and The Bitcoin Standard by our friend uh, Saifedean Amus, who's been on the podcast. Uh, that comes out officially, I think, uh, this week or next week and uh, already out on Kindle. Um, study up because uh, we have a lot of time before... The Thanksgiving dinner to convince oh, yeah. all of our relatives to uh, get in on the Bitcoin train again. I'm hearing great things about Seyfedean's book. I, I actually need to read it. I need to go out and buy it. Uh, but yeah, that might be, you know, uh, this year's uh, annoying uh, Christmas present from Uncle Tone. Uh, <laughs> read Seyfedean's book. I got to read it myself first. I will be traveling to every stocking, you know, and stuffing it with... Uh, yeah. Good Bitcoin knowledge. <laughs> All right. And uh, so thanks, everyone, for listening. Uh, I think that we, we had a good time today. Uh, we'll have you back on at the next bull market. Sounds good. Bye. Have a good one, Tone. I'm often given tasks on the fly, whereas many of my tasks are given as a result of meetings. These days, an increasing number coming from emails or my manager or client asking me to do something. I find myself quite disorganized when dealing with this. I'm writing things down when I'm told, but it's all over the place. Post-its, notebook, phone, etc. I don't have a solid method of keeping track of these things. I'm guessing that 
a possible solution is to write all these things down in the same place, but I've also tried that and didn't really make a difference. I'd appreciate any input or advice you have on how to record and track objectives in a functional and reliable manner, as I'm subjected to a lot of information each day, week, month. I'm definitely overloaded to remember it myself. Discipline equals freedom. So yeah, a few things. First, first of all, definitely write the things down in one place. And it sounds like since you're moving all the time or you're going to meetings, carry just a, a nice little notebook with you and write the things down as you get tasked with them. Then on top of that, you have to have a master list of some kind, either paper or digital. I'm gonna probably recommend digital to track things overall in a prioritized method. So if you get tasked something in a meeting in your little notebook, you come back, you put it in the right place in the master task list. And then like twice a day, consolidate the information that's in the little notebook you have into the big master list. And then before you go to bed at night, you organize those things by priority on the master list. You put the most important thing at the top and that's what you're gonna attack the next day. That's part one on how you get these things organized. Now the part two is you gotta schedule this stuff and actually I always say this, when people have trouble with tasks, put them on the calendar. You know, Actually, Jamie does that for me. Mm-hmm. When Jamie's got something for me to do, she just doesn't email me and say, hey, you need to do this. She puts it on the calendar. Mm-hmm. So I look at my calendar, boom, there it is. I gotta go do this, whatever this task is, done. Mm-hmm. So put these things on your calendar, and that includes scheduling time on your calendar so that you can have time to consolidate your lists and do a review of your lists. Mm. You know, whether that takes, that probably take 15 minutes to do. And I guess there's a bunch of apps you can use and I'm Mm. sure people will make recommendations, but there's a ton of to-do list apps, including there's one, there's native ones on all the different phones. So you could look at that as a possible, a voice recorder. You can either use the voice recorder app you have or you can carry around a little mini voice recorder and you can just take notes with that and then you consolidate those notes from your from your voice recorder mm-hmm. into your master task list every day and then you just got to prioritize and execute. That's it. Pretty straightforward. <laughs>